Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 7th of February. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. Nurses embarked on a third day of strike action at 8 o'clock this morning. 37,000 members of the INMO will be on picket lines until 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. The 24-hour strike will be followed by three rolling days of strike next week and two separate strike days the following week. There is no sign of a resolution with nurses saying pay levels must increase in order to recruit nurses here when they know paying conditions are far better elsewhere and also to keep the nurses we have who may be lured overseas for the same reasons. The government says a pay increase for nurses would mean a pay increase for all 290,000 public sector workers. 25,000 appointments have been cancelled today. 50,000 people are impacted overall. All outpatient, inpatient and day surgery appointments are cancelled as are routine community nursing services and health centre nurse clinics respite and rehabilitation units for the elderly or people with intellectual disabilities will not be in operation mental health services are also being impacted today as members of the Psychiatric Nurses Association have stopped working overtime members of the ambulance service have announced three days of strike action and 300 GPs uh, protested outside of Dáil Éireann yesterday over cuts that they're enduring. Let's talk about all of this with a local independent TD for Meath West, Peter Tobin, who's the chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. It seems as though the government is fighting this on all fronts. Well, I think the, the health service currently is in meltdown. And, you know, the list that you've just given there, uh, when you put it all together, it just shows how shocking things are currently in the health service. And not only is the staffing situation across all those sectors in major trouble, but this, the simple access to the health service now is in serious trouble. So many doctors around the country and GP services are not taking on extra patients whatsoever. Whole counties where patients are not being taken on uh, and the GP services is crumbling and that's the first access for many people into the health service. And then we know that we have had massive trolley numbers over the over the last year with 110,000 people on trolleys. So nearly every aspect of the health service is in meltdown and it is in meltdown as a result of I, the government in action with, with regards to that. You know, we're, I was in contact with some nurses this morning with regards to what's happening around the country and 
I'm being told that people, unless they have a serious emergency, shouldn't be attending uh, A&Es um, because obviously there's not full staff within the A&Es at the moment. There are some nurses providing triage, mm. um, but these have been reduced and there are some emergency response teams uh, in uh, hospitals. So if, if something serious happens, they, they can respond to it quickly. I know that some urgent cancer cases are being dealt with and nurses are, are providing you know help in really different uh, difficult issues for example, when cancer patients get results, and um, you know they will get those results with with those nurses today. Um, we also know is there that, a question you know, over that action that nurses are taking uh, in relation to emergency departments, not just emergency departments, but maybe we could start uh, with uh, that action uh, because nurses are working at a, a reduced level and under instruction. They're seeing some patients and not seeing other patients. Uh, in other words, uh, is that appropriate? Do you think? Well, when workers need to fix a situation, they need to go on strike. And, yes, you know, but quite often no there's a derogation given to emergency services. There is, there is some um, support being given to emergency services. Yes, so but there words. isn't a, a derogation being given to emergency departments. Uh, no, and, and, and that's the nature of industrial, uh, industrial action. Industrial action is the withdrawal of services due to the fact that there is an issue that is not being resolved by management. Well, as I remember it, and perhaps my memory is failing me, but in 1999, nurses worked the emergency departments. Well, that may be the case, but we're... we're that was a, a three-week bitter dispute. I'm not, I'm not trying to, mm. to under, you know, underplay the, the seriousness of this. Mm. There's, there's no doubt that we are at serious risk currently around the state the, in, the, the emergency, the, in emergency services and the health services due to the strike and, and, and I don't think anybody would disagree with that. But, what but the question for you is can or should nurses hold vulnerable people uh, as uh, pawns in the middle of all of this? I mean you're talking about anybody who goes to a, an emergency department believing they're in an emergency situation whether they are or not uh, who may not get <clears throat> the care that they should well, be entitled see, I, to. I, I, I think, you're talking I, I about elderly you're, you're, people who are, are not getting the care that they are entitled to. You're talking about people with disabilities who cannot understand why their world has been turned upside down. Michael, I think you're getting the, the, the um, maybe you're being provocative, but I think it's you're loading the responsibility on the nurses. In this country, 750,000 people are on hospital waiting lists. It's not the nurses that has them on hospital waiting lists. It's the government that has them on hospital waiting lists. In this country, 300 people die of hospital overcrowding every year because of the way it's been, uh, the government is dealing with it. Right now, there are 3,400 elective procedures okay. a month being... No, just wait. No, because you're making... Being your argument is clear. You're, you're, you're arguing that two wrongs make a right. No. Right. What I'm arguing, but why don't you address the, the, the point I was putting to you? I would if I can get a sentence in No, no you're, you're talking about something other go. than that. No, 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 honestly, you are. You're ta- you're, Michael, I no, asked no, you specifically well, about I'm, the action that I'm the nurses are taking. Is, you're talking about the problems that has led to this strike. I'm asking yes, you about... Exactly, I'm, I'm asking, talking about, and, and the nurses are trying to resolve the problems that have le- led to yes, the strike. But my question, the only way that they have to resolve the problems is to bring about this, uh, uh, this strike. And I will tell you something. If you talk to the general public at the moment, there is overwhelming support for the mm. nurses and what they're doing. And that's not by accident, because the public use the hospital services. They know the pressure that the nurses and, are under, and they support the And that's services. why you can't find a politician to voice concern about vulnerable people being made all the more vulnerable. No, but, but the point is, if, if you have a hospital in crisis, if you have a hospital that regularly uh, uh, cancels 3,400 elective procedures a month, just because of overcrowding. If you have a HSC that is expert in cancelling 
uh, operations at short notice for mm. people because of overcrowding. Somebody has to call stop. And because we have a political system where Fianna Fáil is giving a free pass to, uh, to Fianna Gael non-stop, the only people currently that can leverage enough influence on the, the, the establishment to fix the dam service are the nurses. And that's why the nurses have the overwhelming support. And is it justifiable? Is it justifiable to well, cancel surgery for cancer patients? First of all, the, as I said there, that the nurses have stated that they are providing uh, urgent support for cancer. The HSE said it was blue light surgery on Tuesday, so undoubtedly yeah. it'll be the same yeah, today. Here, here's uh, that's, the deal. that's not here's planned the surgery for people who have invasive cancers. Uh, this here's is, the deal. Regina is that justifiable? Regina Doherty was on the radio last week yeah. and a number of government ministers were on the radio last week and they said that they would talk to the nurses yeah. the next well, day if possible. Now here we are, a full week later, and the government have not contact, okay. contacted the nurses to that's, sit down that, that's and a, simply discuss that's what a, the issues that, That's are. a very valid point and we asked Regina Doherty to come on the radio this morning. If she had come on the radio, which she very rarely does these days, but if she had have taken 10 minutes out of her day to speak to us on the radio station, on her local radio station this morning, we would have asked her if she thought it was justifiable to put the nurses in a situation whereby they felt that it, it, they should cancel operations for people who have invasive cancer. Uh, she, sure. she, she, she's not available. So I'm asking you, uh, as an opposition TD, who's in support of the nurses, if you believe if you believe it is justifiable for the nurses to take that action and to leave people without important surgery. Are, 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 I believe that the nurses' actions today are not just justifiable. I actually think they are absolutely pivotal. And if the nurses didn't do this, what we would see is the health service crash even further. There are 2,500 children waiting more than a year for their first mental health. Somebody might... Not not because of the nurses. Somebody might... Because of Simon Harris. Somebody might have had... Nobody's holding Simon Harris to account. Somebody might have had an operation scheduled for today cancelled, which could have saved their lives or given them six months extra or a year extra, as the case may be. And and a delay, a delay in that surgery is of huge concern to them. Yes. Every day people have surgery cancelled in this country, Michael. Every day people have their lives shortened due to the health service. Now, what you're saying is that nobody should provide resistance or opposition to the government's pack-handed manner in dealing with the hospital service. Now, I'll give you an example. In 2008, there were 1,700 more nurses in the system. In 2008, there was a smaller population and the population was younger. So after we've had at least eight years of uh, Fine Gael government, on top of that, going back to that period of time, another three years of Fianna Fáil government, and yet we're still, we have still less nurses. We have theatres today, Michael, that cannot be opened, fully furnished, expensive theatres that cannot be opened because there's no nurses to, open, to, to work in those because there's not enough nurses in the system. Yeah, well, I mean, we have beds. I'm, we have beds I'm very aware of it. I've sat in this. I've sat in this very seat for the last 15 years, making those points with nurses and two government ministers of various parties. And for uh, a number of years uh, before I sat in this seat elsewhere, I'm very aware of the problems, and I understand the reason why nurses have, for the last 20 years, been threatening to go on strike. Uh, they didn't until this time, and now that they are on strike. I'm asking uh, if the manner in which they're striking is putting people at risk. Well, no, because here's the choice the nurses have. They can strike in a manner that exerts ultimate pressure on the government for a response 
to achieve a better health service. They could treat cancer patients, they could treat themselves. people in emergency departments, they could treat the elderly, they could treat people with disabilities. Well, uh, listen, it's, it's, you know, the way that the government are ignoring the staff within the hospital services for so long in all their efforts to engage respectfully and uh, in, in a manner of partnership shows you that the government are deaf, unfortunately, to uh, just, you know, decent engagement. The government will only understand when the nurses put significant pressure on them. And I can tell you that it is right across the board. The nurses themselves are actually shocked at the level of support that they're getting from the people. The nurses are telling me that it's like if the people were waiting for this opportunity to send the government the message. And, you know, even other workers from other unions, they're actually getting in contact Mm, with the nurses and saying, we are really proud of the fact that the nurses have stood up in a manner that they they are doing because their own particular unions wouldn't do it. The government could easily resolve this under the the, uh, PSSA, the, the, um, the Public Service, a stability agreement if they wanted to just on the basis of recruitment and retention it wouldn't allow for knock-on claims or relativity claims Well uh, tell that to the other trade unions who represent those other sectors but uh, what about uh, the emergency department in Our Ladies of Navan? The hospital issued a statement last night saying that it was overrun and not to attend today because of uh, the nurses strike uh, it would appear as though the hospital was not overrun yesterday uh, if the trolley figures or anything to go by there was nobody on trolleys in Navan yesterday well, see, what I understand is happening in the hospitals due to the strike is, and, and due to the, the, the lack of funding as well, is that many um, patients are not being discharged from the wards onto community services. So many, every day, you know, a number of patients would leave the wards and get uh, sent to the community services for further treatment or, or, or health. That's not happening. So the wards are blocked with regards to uh, discharges. And as a result, there's simply no space even for a few people to be migrated from A&E into the wards. And that's one of the reasons why the hospitals are putting out this message to say that you know people mm. shouldn't attend the A&E unless it is an absolutely serious emergency. And, and as I, I imagine they're doing that just for safety uh, concerns within the hospitals themselves. There's no doubt about this. This is a very serious strike and the, there mm. are risks within the system currently. Okay. But there's also no doubt about it that these, this health service is in meltdown for the last number of years and the strike is a product of that meltdown. And the reason it's a meltdown is because the, the Fine Gael are making the decisions they're making and Fianna Fáil are giving them a free pass. And Fine Gael deciding to spend €2 billion Euro on uh, the National Children's Hospital. Uh, the minister is saying yesterday that uh, it appears to be value for money. And, and, and that's the thing that's blowing everybody's mind, Michael. It's absolutely making people sick to the pit of their stomach. That Again, we have Simon Harris, who's, who is standing over... Um, this this radical increase in the cost of the National Children's Hospital, and at the same time saying he didn't really know that the, the, the crisis was ballooning. Like in any normal functioning democracy, Simon Harris would be gone at this stage. But the reason that he's, he's, he's not gone is because, and Fianna Fáil said it the other day, they said that they're not going to, to, to rock the boat on the basis of the fact that Brexit is coming down the stream. But like in, in the end of the day, if you don't hold ministers to account... You will have other examples such as this, and we see it in the broadband, and we see it in other aspects where you know they're, they're looking to build infrastructure from the Shannon now to bring water into Dublin, which there's worries that that's going to balloon out of uh, all uh, costs as well. So, like, <clears throat> there's no doubt in my mind, accountability is central to the functioning of the health service, and accountability is missing from the top. 
All right, we have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you, though, for joining us uh, this morning. Independent TD for Mead West, Patter Tobin. Michael Reed on LMFM. The government launches its regional enterprise plan for the Mid-East in Kildare this afternoon. We'll hear more about this now with uh, the Minister for Agriculture, Michael Creed, who's on the line. Good morning, Minister. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme. Essentially, this is an update of uh, the regional enterprise plan for counties Kildare, Louth, Meath and Wicklow. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, Michael, what it is, is trying to build on the initiative of some years back when uh, we had the action plan for jobs in the, in the teeth of the, the recession. And, and, and we went out and, and, and kind of worked with local communities and local enterprise boards, uh, local development companies, local authorities, state agencies. And, you know, in, in, in the face of considerable scepticism, those uh, action plans delivered. And what we are now doing is kind of, I suppose, updating them and taking into account where the economy is and what ambition we should have for... Well, that scepticism, Minister, would have said high in aspiration and low in delivery. Uh, the delivery of uh, the last plan was in around uh, the region of uh, 70% of what was anticipated. Well, I think if you, if you look at uh, the, the growth that took place in all of the regions, uh, you know, it defied all um, of, of the critics' expectations and was driven by, you know, a very focused group within the Department of Enterprise. And I think by any yardstick, it was deemed to be successful. And what we're doing now is building mm. on that. Well, 70% is uh, the success rate, according to the Implementation Committee. Uh, and you'd believe uh, that's the yardstick uh, that would make your argument that it's been successful thus far. Well, Michael, when I was going to school, if I came home with a 70% mark in any exam, you know, my parents would have been quite quite happy with it. Okay. Um, so 70% was, was uh, I, I think, is not an unreasonable level of success. All right. Uh, but where has that success been in terms of uh, the people who are living in uh, the four counties that we're talking about today? Because many of them are commuters. Uh, we are essentially the commuter belt. And uh, we saw clear evidence of uh, that yesterday in Leash uh, with the Midlands plan being launched. And Minister Humphreys talking about county boundaries, which were not an issue in her view for people that they were happy to travel to work. And of course, that is uh, the case uh, in the region that we're talking about now, where we have 84 percent of people who have to leave their home and travel outside of County Meath and East Meath every single day to go to work? Well, look, I mean, what, what the plans are about is, is driving growth in the regions. And undoubtedly, people will travel for work and some people will be fortunate enough to find uh, work closer, whether that involves crossing a county boundary or a parish boundary or whatever. What we are talking about is working with local communities, local development uh, agencies such as the local authorities, local enterprise offices, facilitating uh, that local employment. In the agri-food space, for example, uh, the, the Food Innovation Hub in Navan, which looks at you know, developing, I think it's almost 800 square metres uh, for new food startups. Now, that's a really important because if you take the Boyne Valley, you know, it has a, a very strong... Uh, recognition as a, a kind of a food production area. If you talk about companies that are almost household names and some mm. international names from the, you know, the Kerry Group in, 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 in Kildare to the Mead Potato Company, Lear Chocolates, they all have a local uh, foothold in, in, in the region for this uh, action plan. And what we're talking about is building on that. I mean, there is huge interest now in provenance in food. And I think in terms of small uh, start-up food companies, this uh, facility, this initiative 
and the peer learning that can come from established businesses already is one of the prongs that will drive local opportunities for local food companies. But it's not just about food companies. It's about small engineering companies. It's about the range of opportunities that local people will bring forward and know that as they bring forward these ideas that there is support available for them. Uh, What kind of a a budget has been allocated uh, for the next plan? My understanding is that that the the plan is demand led so that if you have a you know a suitable uh, and appropriate idea the funding will be available either through Enterprise Ireland depending on the scale of the project or through the local enterprise offices there will be no good viable business proposition that will be left unfunded there's a, obviously in any schemes there's an evaluation process um you know, to see if, if the proposal stands up to, to scrutiny. And that uh, will obviously involve appropriate people from the local enterprise offices, Enterprise Ireland, as the case may be. Um, and and if, if, the, if the scheme or proposal stands up to scrutiny, for example, in the food area, it may acquire uh, premises uh, in, in the Boyne Valley Hub, or it may be somebody coming with a standalone opportunity for a farmhouse cheese or whatever. These are the kind of enterprises that can drive local economies, and as long as the proposal stacks up, the support will follow. So it's a, a, an invitation to entrepreneurs, is it? It is, of course, yeah. I mean, okay. like the, so there's no specific plan. There's no money ring fence for this. Uh, there's no plan. Uh, and well, you're, ho- said, Michael, you're making said, a presentation to people in the hope that they'll come forward with ideas uh, and apply for funding that is probably already available. No, what, what I said was it is demand-led. Uh, it is giving a focus to local uh, agencies to play to their strengths. One of those that I'm familiar with in the food area is, for example, the Boyne Valley Food Hub. There will be other clusters and initiatives that that can prosper as well. But what it's about is bringing a focus to all of that through a regional group that has come together, put forward its plan, identified its strengths and and, 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 and opportunities, and state agencies responding accordingly in terms of proposals that will come forward in these areas uh, for which there will be funding available. Uh, and that if that funding is made uh, available for people in these counties, uh, the prospect is that they will have to cross boundaries uh, because, as Minister Humphrey said yesterday, uh, jobs are not about county boundaries. Well, they're not. I mean, like if you're living, like, look, people, you're living in, in, in a commuter belt there. People will obviously continue to commute, but it's also about creating, not everybody commutes, it's about creating local opportunities. And one of, say, for example, the, the drivers of local investment um, in, in, uh, in, in rural areas in particular has been the leader groups. And, you know, one of the initiatives, for example, in, in, in the food area, for example, that was launched last year, mm. Through Minister Ring's department was a leader food initiative. I think there's a budget available for that of up to 15 million euros uh, up to 2020. Um, so, I mean, this is a bottom-up approach. It's not the state telling people where to go and what they should do. It is saying, listen, if you have an idea, this is the, the forum in which you can prosecute that with the relevant state agencies, get support if it's a viable proposition. Okay, and uh, you'll be launching this in NACE at uh, 3 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, I gather you won't be stopping off at uh, the picket line at the hospital in NACE this afternoon, Minister? No, I don't plan to to stop off there, Michael, but I mean, the uh, government recognises the gravity of this. We 
um, also recognise that there is a negotiated uh, pay agreement with all public servants. And we also acknowledge, of course, that there are nurses who are in other nursing unions that are at work today. Um, and in an effort to be fair to all, the resolution to this, and there will be a resolution to this, uh, has to rest within the, the confines and parameters of the public sector pay agreement. Okay, listen, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's the Minister for Agriculture, Food and Marine, Michael Creed, who's a, a TD for Cork Northwest. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, we'll stay with uh, the nurses' strike and some issues uh, related to it. We're joined by Paul Bell, who's a SIP2 Health Division organiser. And uh, it's uh, worth mentioning that SIP2 nurses are at work today. Uh, Paul Bell is also a Labour Party councillor and was mentioned on the programme yesterday in the context of a meeting of uh, the municipal district and how a motion supporting uh, the nurses uh, wasn't put to members because, as the accusation went, at least, you were talking down the clock. Good morning to you. Thanks for coming in to us and joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, the Sinn Féin councillor, Kenneth Flood, uh, said that this was uh, because of your role in SIPTU. Is that correct, that you didn't want this motion to go to councillors? Well, Michael, I listened to, to your interview with interest, as I listened to all of your programmes with great interest, and uh, I found that quite a bizarre interview. Firstly, um, to suggest that the clock was wound down on a particular agenda, uh, on the basis that I have been mentioned, did not wish to vote on that motion, uh, is actually, it goes beyond rationale for me. There are only two people in my life that I can recall that actually know what I'm thinking before I go to do something. That's my late mother and Mrs. Bell. Firstly, I want to clarify this for your listeners and those who are out there involved in the health services. If that motion had come before me, I had no difficulty in supporting the motion. And I'll put it in context for you. Because I support the right of workers who wish to take up a struggle in a strike. I also support the rights of workers who decide they're going to pursue their objectives and their ambitions through other methods. Uh, I was interviewed on a national broadcaster, I think it was the 8th of January, and I made that quite clear in my professional work. Uh, I also made it quite clear that uh, we would do everything in our powers to support our comrades that are on strike mm. within the parameters that are set out. And within the request, the formal request, of our comrades in the INMO, and that's what we've done to date. And SIP2 workers are yeah. in work. They are, yeah, they're not involved in the dispute. And they're not involved in this dispute. dispute. And the uh, claim as a result of that is uh, that you're instructing your members to pass picket lines. Yeah. Well, Michael, that's something that's been propagated a lot for people who want to take some type of political advantage. Uh, anything I've ever said is a matter of public record, and I did not say those things. I may also point out is that there are other trade unions mm. who have a position on the way forward for their members. Okay. And they're attending work also. Uh, and they're, they're working today, but yeah. they're passing pickets. Uh, whether <laughs> it's against the will of those picketing or otherwise, explain yeah, do, the difference do, do, do to I us. explain yeah. to you, the INMO have yeah. requested that, that members who are not involved in this dispute report to work as normal and make sure that you do not do anything to frustrate their dispute. And that's been honoured to the letter. We have con constant communication with our comrades in the INMO to ensure that these things run as smoothly as possible. 
And we're going to continue to work with our comrades in the INMO in that regard. But I want to make this quite mm. clear. Uh, what's being made against me is a political charge uh, for political advantage. There is no basis to it. Uh, I have represented working people for since I was 18 years mm. of age, whether they're in trade unions, whether they're not in trade unions. Mm. Many people listening to this radio station will be very clear about me coming to their aid to defend them against employers, by the way, who don't recognise organised labour, who actually don't recognise their rights. And I've done that uh, voluntarily since I was 18 years of age. And then I became a professional trade union official, uh, which I'm proud to be. Uh, and my family, by the way, um, has been representing people in this town for over 100 years. Okay. Okay, I just want to make that quite clear because, you see, it's in my pedigree uh, to do what I'm doing. I don't have to make this stuff up. Uh, and I actually believe in what I'm trying to do and I'm, I believe in people struggling every day of the week. Okay, there's a, a lot of people listening to us yeah. uh, who aren't used to strike action, who yes. aren't used to industrial yeah. action, who are too young, I'm sure it's fortunate yes. enough to say, to yes. remember uh, the 70s and 80s when strikes were commonplace and the turn of phrase uh, to pass a picket mm. has connotations. It, mm. it means that you're breaking a picket mm. yeah. and that you're undermining the action that yeah. has been taken by the workers. Yeah. Uh, if you're not asked to respect the picket and to stay outside, mm-hmm. uh, it's a different thing and you go into work. Mm-hmm. In order to do that, you pass the picket line uh, uh, as friendly mm-hmm. uh, and as agreed as possible. Uh, and you're saying that that is the case, that you're not breaking the picket or trying to undermine the we picket. We are doing exactly what the INMO has requested us to do. Right. Now, there has been a campaign online, as I understand it, yes. suggesting that you have told your members to break the picket which you say you have not done, and, and not. that the action that SIPTU has taken is in line with wishes of yeah. the INMO. Yeah. Uh, but did you make a, a complaint to Sinn Féin about this campaign? Because we heard clear. yesterday that yes. you did. Yeah, there was a, an utterance uh, yesterday by Councillor Flood. Uh, my communication with uh, comrades in the Sinn Féin party, which who I work with, who are advancing the causes of workers throughout the, the economy, be it in health or whatever else. Uh, my communication uh, with, with the colleague there was on the basis of trying to reach out to uh, local representatives, local Sinn Féin people if necessary, if they wished to understand the position that we were involved in or the work that we were doing, if they wished to understand that. Uh, I offered to meet uh, people to explain that. Mm-hmm. That's what I offered to do. That offer still stands, of course, as mm-hmm. it would stand for any other citizen. What does that mean? Did, did you say this is unfair? Stop this fellow from doing this on the no, internet actually, or stop that what, fellow from doing What I basically mm-hmm. said was that I was concerned that there were remarks mm-hmm. being made about me which were inaccurate and that were impacting on me and that were also impacting on my family uh, because they were untrue. Uh, and that's what was said. I did uh, offer to reach out on the basis of having a discussion and saying, listen, these are the positions you might want to be aware of. Mm. But that's fine. If you choose not to do so, not to have that discussion, that's your right. And if you choose to have the discussion, that's fair enough. In a democracy, Michael, is my understanding, everybody has a right to free speech. And I just want to, if I could come out of that, because I don't, I'm not making an allegation against anybody in this particular way. Uh, I've listened to your programme for many, many, many years and uh, I'm not attributing this to to Councillor Flood but I want to make this clear. I now have a very good understanding of what cyberbullying means. 
I have been subjected uh, to the most horrendous behaviour, commentary about me, all of it untrue, uh, just to damage me. Not to damage anybody but me or the organisation or the people who are uh, maybe represented by me. Uh, And I have to say, it is absolutely violent. Uh, I am a public representative since 2004. I'm representing, uh, working in my organisations 25 years. Uh, and I have, I want to say this to people listening to this programme have come to me and said, you know, how do you deal with that? Well, it's extremely difficult. If I make a mistake and I'm criticised, I can accept that. I can do two things about that. I can apologise and say, listen, I got that wrong. Mm. I'll try and do it better the next time. Or I can say, sorry, I, I don't share your opinion. Mm. I'm a Democrat. Uh, but this is all to do with some type of understanding of either basically maligning me, destroying me, okay. for whatever I stand okay, for. Okay, I have that point, and yeah. I'm watching the clock while you're talking, yeah. uh, so yeah. I'm going to move on from that point, yeah. if you don't mind, and uh, leave cyber behaviour to the internet, yeah. where there are no rules, no regulations, yeah. no accountability, and yes. that's fine, and yes. people are entitled to free speech, as you Absolutely. say. Here it's a, a different matter altogether. Yes, there, are, there are rules, there is regulation, and, and there, there is accountability. Yes. Uh, and you're here today as Paul Bell, you're here today as a Labour Party councillor, yeah. you're also here today as a representative of SIPTU and you'll mm. be held to account mm. for what you say on behalf of the trade mm. union uh, and what you say will be listened to by members of the INMO yeah. uh, and what you're saying is that you're not breaking the strike uh, yeah. and I'm sure that the INMO will be very happy to contradict that if it's not correct. Absolutely, I'm sure they would. You're, you're standing yeah. by that. Yeah, very mm. clear Mike, I came in here today as mm. a councillor but I, mm. I, I will answer your questions yeah. as you put them to me. Uh, our comrades in the INMO who are working with us and in contact with us on a daily basis, they know exactly what we're doing. And we're doing exactly as they've requested. And by the way, Michael, mm. uh, I can provide documentation to that effect. Okay. And, and, and by the way, we've also said, and I want to make this quite clear, we've also said that we respect the strategy being adopted by that organisation. And if there's anything we can do mm. to ensure that we don't uh, frustrate and, uh, and, that. And I'm accepting what you've said because yeah. you've shown me that documentation. Yes. Now, uh, let's talk about the SIP2 position mm-hmm. because uh, I think that's been the subject of some yeah. criticism as well. Uh, you say the INMO is entitled to take strike action. Yeah. You understand the reasons for it. Why are your members not out in the picket lines? We're pursuing, we are pursuing the strategy, by the way, because there may be some understanding that we are indifferent or don't care about uh, the workers' rights rights for terms and conditions and overcrowding for us. We, understaffing we absolutely be very clear with that underpaid we, we participated in the Public Service Pay Commission we understand what has come out of that uh, we we will accept what's been offered there uh, for new entrants which is due on March 1 uh, there's payments due there uh, we accept that but we also are pursuing those issues that our comrades are pursuing through dialogue and through uh, what we would see as creating a process going forward which will address these issues. And these issues have to be addressed. They have to be addressed right across the health service. Uh, they have to be addressed for nurses, they have to be addressed for midwives, doctors, healthcare assistants, other people who work in it, paramedics, all those people are trying to provide a service. Uh, so we want to be very, very clear. 
we share the understandings and the frustrations, mm. but we're also trying to understand that we remain inside the public service to build. Are agreement. you the only soldier marching in line, though? Because the INMO is out, <coughs> the PNO has an overtime ban uh, in place before it goes on strike. Mm-hmm. Members of NASRA, which are ambulance personnel mm-hmm. who are not members of SIP2, yeah. have announced strike action, and GPs mm-hmm. have walked off well, the I, job. Well, I will deal with the public service stability agreement, uh, the, the nursing dispute, no matter which organisations involved is about the public service stability agreement. That's what that's about. Uh, we're involved in the public service stability agreement. To say that we're the only organisation that's pursuing the track that we're pursuing is incorrect, Michael. Uh, there are other organisations within the public service stability agreement. There's a range of trade unions, members of, of yeah. the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, who are pursuing these strategies. And we all pursue the strategies to make it better for our people. Don't forget something. We're coming out of a massive depression trying to recover a health service that has suffered very badly. Mm. By the way, those providing the service are suffering very badly and those relying on the service are suffering quite badly. Well, if this is a, a kickback, is the kickback because the Irish Congress of Trade Unions sold its members out? Is it a manifest, manifestation of a bad deal? Well, I, ha- I, I certainly haven't heard that and it's something I wouldn't agree with. Uh, as far as we're concerned in SIP2, and I'm sure it all are the same, uh, we will finish off the public service stability agreement. We will try to get into new negotiations to, again, regain more and more ground for people working in, 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 the, in the health service, but also working in the wider public service who, who are suffering, obviously, have, from wage cuts that they've suffered on, almost 10 years ago. And we're in that process of recovering pay and also to advance pay. And we respect the right of anybody who's trying to do that. And that's what we're going to keep working at. The, the big danger for us is that we do not wish to lose the public service stability agreement for our members. And many of whom are low paid and we'd like to to walk that agreement out and we are prepared with other colleagues in Congress to walk a new agreement if the government see fit in the future. Paul Bell, thank you for coming in to us uh, this morning. Paul Bell is SIP2 Health Division Organiser and uh, Labour Party Councillor in Louth. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Lots coming in in relation to the nurses' strike and your interview at the top of the programme with Deputy Padre Tobin. Uh, Dundalk, a gentleman phoned in and says, Michael, he's been listening to your coverage of the nurses' strike over the last week and you seem to be very biased if for the government and against the nurses and he cannot understand the reason for this he says he is a regular listener to the programme and he knows you have a job to do but where is the balance? He says you need to get a couple of ministers on Mm. or a couple of councillors on and hold them to account. He says that it's Fine Gael and Jess Fianna Fáil because they're propping up the government that need to be asked the questions of. The way it's coming across is that you're speaking on behalf of the government and you're very anti-nurse. All right. well as I said uh, we did ask uh, Regina Doherty uh, to speak to to us uh, this morning, the Minister was unavailable. Michael is very rude, says Anne from Dunshockland. He wouldn't even give the man a chance to explain. The nurses don't want to strike. Another listener feels that the nurse's situation is getting out of hand. I know a lady who has had cancer and her appointment to get scan results was cancelled. Something urgent has to be done. John from Navin is just home from hospital after his ninth heart attack. The nurses couldn't do enough for me. There is a crew in every part of the hospital covering areas. 
Liz got in touch from East Mead and says that she cannot understand Michael Reed's stance in relation to this industrial action. That during every interview so far this week, he has come down against the nurses, wants to know why is this? Have you secretly got a job like so many other journalists working on behalf of the government? Because that is the way it's coming across. You don't seem to be putting the arguments of the nurses across at all, uh, says Liz. Okay, all right. Uh, I'm sure uh, there's uh, some merit in that. And thank you indeed uh, for making those uh, comments. I hope we did put some of uh, those points uh, to Senator Colin Burke, who's uh, Fine Gael's spokesperson on health in uh, the Shannet uh, yesterday. And indeed, as I say, uh, we had hoped to have a spokesperson from the government with us today, but that proved to be elusive. Let's talk about nuclear waste now and the prospect of it being on our doorstep. Green Party Councillor Mark Deary is on the line and this follows uh, the announcement uh, from the British government uh, that they're looking at a, a number of areas in Northern Ireland uh, for potentially disposing of nuclear waste and one of them is in the Newry and Morn area. Uh, that's correct, uh, Michael. <clears throat> the British government established um, a, a company um, called uh, Nuclear Waste Management, or WM, who were tasked with the job of scoping geological sites all over England, Wales and Northern Ireland um, to see if it was one that would be suitable and stable enough um, and not permeable so that water courses wouldn't uh, be polluted um, for, for, for the long-term storage of the nuclear waste at Sellafield and other sites. Um, this waste is highly radioactive. It, 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 it's cooled down for many, many years in, 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 in highly active waste tanks that are kept cool by seawater, then vitrified, turned into glass blocks and then stored on site where it still is and will be for the foreseeable future. Uh, the radioactive isotopes have half-lives of thousands of years. In other words, it's dangerous to human beings and all living creatures for, for thousands of years. It is the legacy of, of, of um, making en- electricity out of nuclear power because the fuel rods eventually uh, have to be disposed mm. of in this way. Um, the question is, where will the long-term stor- longest-term storage happen? It can't remain on surface at Sellafield, degrading as it is, um, forever, and, a site, and it does need to be managed, and we all recognise that. And they're looking at five potential geological disposal sites in Northern Ireland, and they believe that this one may be suitable because of a, a granite bedrock which stretches from Schlieve Gullion to the Mourne Mountains. That's right, that's right, the geology suits it. Um, so uh, there are several other sites, though, um, in, 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 in England and Wales that would also be suitable. The key thing here, well, there are two, two points I'd like to make, if, if, if you wouldn't mind. One is that um, our uh, in, uh, radioactive waste management, RWM, are clear that the community must uh, agree to the locating of uh, a long-term. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Repository deep underground. Um, and the prospects of that happening in Uri and Morn are so close to zero as to, you know, to, to, you can discount that. It's, there is going to be no welcome for this kind of facility in the area. Mm. And the reaction over the last few days has shown that uh, it can't be foisted on a community. There are a handful of communities in Britain. On, the last time this was done, uh, when, when, when this kind of scoping exercise was done in England, there were a handful of local authorities who said in principle that they would be happy to allow the the um, research to be done in their counties. Uh, they would be ones where there's already a strong nuclear industry and where the local economy depends heavily on that nuclear industry, North Wales, Cumbria, and places like that. There is no nuclear industry in Ireland. There's no nuclear expertise in, 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 in Northern Ireland. Um, it, there, there would be enormous implications in mm. terms of transboundary pollution uh, that we in the South would obviously have to take very, very seriously. Well, we in the South and, and, and where else, what do we know about the research into this? This is called geological disposal facilities. Uh, and I presume the idea is that the rock is strong enough uh, to contain the nuclear waste. Uh, but do we know that to be the case or will it contaminate us here in the South or fall all the way through to Australia? Sounds like a flat earth theory or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think I, you know. I, I think you know the point I, I, of making. Yeah, I do get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know the, the the answers to those technical questions. Um, in the in the broadest terms, I presume they're looking at seismic activity, uh, whether the rock is porous, um, and and lo- I'm sure there are many, many, many technical features they're looking for to make sure they find a suitable site. I honestly, um, I, I think a key question here is why Northern Ireland. Because you may have noticed I didn't mention Scotland, mm. because the Scottish Parliament in 2011 uh, took the precaution of um, issuing its own policy on, on the storage of nuclear waste. The Scottish Parliament recognises that nuclear waste is a legacy issue that has to be managed. Um, it's, it, 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 it's a huge, I think, public policy failure that that has been allowed to happen over the decades in Britain. But it is, and that's where we are, and we can't magic it away. So they recognise the need for management, but they've also put in place a highly detailed regulatory framework by which that would happen in Scotland, and it does not, it it, it excludes deep, unrecoverable uh, deposition under the ground. It it goes for a near surface um, uh, policy. In other words, that the the waste can be be closely monitored, can be be watched by human eyes, um, and can be, if if canisters and and vitrified blocks are beginning to degrade, that they can be removed and replaced. So uh, the Scottish Parliament has girded itself against any, any speculation by RWM. On the other hand, the Northern Ireland Assembly, I understand, but I haven't been able to get the documentation on this yet, but I will, and I'll come back to you if I do, uh, have, um, have in principle allowed this scoping exercise to happen. I did so a number of years ago, driven by, I think, by the DUP, who I recall some of their MPs and M- uh, MLAs 
uh, talking about uh, Northern Ireland being a, a possible location. I'm sure for reasons of the union and all of that, um, very misguided in my mind, but nonetheless, that was their view. So the, the, the Northern Ireland Assembly uh, has left the door open on this, and that's why these people are here now. Okay. Uh, if and when the Assembly comes back, I think they need to really read the regulations that Scotland have put in place and basically cut and paste them into their own legislation. If and when it comes back. If uh, and, well, it's a, it's a big said. if and a big when. Yeah. And... Uh, there's uh, concern uh, as well uh, about this process. It, it should be said that this is the beginning of a, a process uh, and if uh, the end result is that nuclear waste is on our doorstep, uh, well, that won't be for 10 or 15 years. Uh, but there's a, a theory that this decision has, in effect, already been made and it's the reason for building the Southern Relief Road and expanding Warren Point Port. But that's a conspiracy theory, is it? It, it, it absolutely is. I, I'm Speaking regularly to people, uh, because I chair the Nuclear Free Local Authorities, uh, um, I, I co-chair it, the Irish Forum, but I'm closely connected to the UK um, um, mothership, if you like, who in turn are at all of the regulatory meetings all over Britain, are in regular dialogue with the industry. I've been at stakeholder events myself, run by the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority. I've met the Chief Executive of the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority, one of the highest paid civil servants in, in the UK and head of an agency with a €7 billion annual budget for cleaning up the nuclear legacy. And I can tell you that the general view is that the chances of this happening in Northern Ireland are incredibly remote. But, as I said uh, at the council meeting the other night, I think our posture should be one of vigilance rather than alarm. And that kind of uh, theory that you put to me there a moment ago is alarmist and isn't based on anything other than uh, an an opinion or a a conspiracy. Um, I, I think the chances of this happening are remote, but I do think the Assembly, when it does get back, has a job of work to do that will spare all of us. Could I just finally say that I think even even this scoping exercise is, is testing already fragile relationships between the UK uh, and and Ireland generally. Um, and and it's, it's an unfortunate um, intervention during these very, very sensitive times. Mm. And I really, I really wish that, uh, that uh, RWD would look elsewhere. And I'm sure that's not uh, a point uh, that has passed most people listening to us. Uh, I mean, in the context of a, a no-deal Brexit and a, yes. a breakdown in communications and so on, well, they can do whatever they want, can't they? Not just in relation to, to this, but... In you need, yes, they, things, will also, yeah, they will also have left the, 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 the nuclear regulatory mm. framework that is Euratom. Mm. which is uh, like a subset of the European Union, they'll be outside of that as well. Um, uh, now, they, they, there, there are agreements in place around um, a self, uh, you know, regulatory system that will be established by the UK and over, over, overview, overviewed by the International Atomic Energy Agency in okay. Vienna. Um, but nonetheless, they are, in, they are more independent of, of, of the views of other nations than they were. They're still signatories to the Transboundary Pollution Agreements, the OSPAR Convention, the ESPU Convention, all these conventions that allow us in Ireland to defend ourselves against pollution from another state. Uh, But nonetheless, we don't want to have to go down those routes. But in fact, this, in my mind, is just a a kite-flying exercise that has almost no reality in it and is highly unlikely to ever happen. But we need to be vigilant and the Assembly has a job to do. Mark, thank you indeed. As always, Mark Green Party councillor speaking to me there. Now let's go back uh, to some more of your thoughts and comments. Uh, Marie, you've uh, plenty there in front of you, I can see. Mary from Navin, would the nurses get off the streets and get back to work? They do not have the support of the people who are on waiting lists for surgery like myself. Have we to wait until somebody dies? They should be ashamed of themselves. They don't stay on the picket until eight in the evening. They are gone at six, says Mary. Just looking at the news, says another listener, 
half of the nurses are going abroad after their training for more money. I always thought it was a vocation to help sick people get better. It seems that they only want to help themselves. Lisa from Nav and Michael, it comes across that you are against nurses. My dad was brought into Our Lady of Lords on Tuesday and he still received fantastic care, says Lisa. Good. And I know we're going to be speaking to a GP shortly, a local GP, but an interesting text from a listener who says, my daughter-in-law went into a surgery to see if they would take her on and her newborn baby, only to be told that they couldn't because they can't cope with the amount of patients they already have. It's a disgrace. My grandson is due for his injection next week but so far she hasn't been able to get a doctor who will take them on what is going on with the health system I'm still in shock with the whole outcome okay well thanks for sharing that with us Uh, bad and all as it is uh, but we appreciate you taking the time to call us and let us know and uh, thanks to everybody who has been in touch thanks Marie for that matter for bringing us uh, those calls and comments and if you'd like to add to what's been said Marie and Maggie are taking calls this morning on 1857 Michael Reed on LMFM. I've been wondering what that place in hell looks like for those who promoted Brexit without even a sketch of a plan for how to carry it out safely. Now, infamous words which were uttered by Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council yesterday. Mrs May is on her way to Brussels today. Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy has been telling me she can expect a frosty reception. Well, certainly the language used yesterday by European leaders was definitive, to put it mildly. A number of things happened yesterday that I think were significant. One was obviously the clear signal of intent by EU leaders that the withdrawal agreement and particularly the backstop isn't open for renegotiation. Obviously, we hope that they stick to that. The second thing that happened was the Labour Party in Britain put forward um, proposals um, that signal that there may be some sign of um, of some potential for uh, an agreement to be reached within the House of Commons and for a majority position to be found in what would be um, a possibly even softer Brexit than the withdrawal agreement would announce. And then the third one that probably won't get picked up by many in the European media, but I think is significant, is the report um, by Suzanne Lynch of the impact of Irish-American leaders, particularly in the Congress and Senate, um, saying that they would look um, very um, unfavourably towards a trade deal with the... British government in the event that they had done anything to reinforce um, a hard border in Ireland. So I think collectively um, there are signals that we may be in the end game. Today is 50 days away from the March the 29th um, deadline, as you know, so clearly. Yeah. Um, uh, and that may be a game changer because, uh, I mean, uh, the United Kingdom cannot leave uh, the European Union uh, without a deal if it can't strike a deal with America. And congressmen are saying that if the Good Friday Agreement is not upheld, there will be no deal. Yes, um, and you, you might remember from the time of the Brexit referendum, one of the big points um, on the part of the Brexiteers was that a US trade deal and other trade deals indeed would be would be agreed in you know, record time, I think. Yeah. Um, Nigel Farage said it would be the easiest trade deal or the quickest trade deal in the history 
of the of the world. So it appears that, as has happened so many times in the past, that Irish America um, is not going to allow their home country or their ancestors' home country to be collateral damage in this whole Brexit scenario. So I would welcome that intervention. So all those developments yesterday combined say that there are some signs of hope, but at the same time, we can't but be concerned with the time frame. We have 50 mm. days before the March 29th. I recall many conversations with yourself and others, Michael, mm-hmm. where we indicated that if we didn't have a deal before November of last year, that things would be very difficult um, logistically to get through. Well, we're now in, yeah. moving towards the middle of February with really no sign that something definitive can be agreed over the next number of days. There's a, a face-saving exercise that is necessary, though, for Mrs May. I'm sure you'll agree that, that there needs to be something that she can say she wants some ground on so that it, it doesn't look like total defeat. The British at this stage are set to become the laughingstock of Europe. Well, many would argue that they already are, but the truth is you know, it's difficult to see what Theresa May can be offered that mm. doesn't, on the other hand, damage the assurances that Ireland needs. The backstop is there as an insurance policy is often quoted. I hope that it never needs to be used because the backstop in many respects is the least worst option. It still creates problems for trade north-south. But I'm sure you'll accept that to go ahead with uh, the deal that Mrs May negotiated, the draft deal, would mean humiliation in the eyes of many British people. Uh, To Uh, go ahead and leave without a deal would undoubtedly be disastrous for them Uh, and uh, to be told where to go by Europe uh, again would be disastrous for them. Uh, Otherwise uh, they have the option of staying within the European Union uh, and giving up uh, this whole aspiration of sovereignty and independence and becoming the laughingstock of Europe. Well the difficulty with all of this is that the The issues that pertain to the difficulties that Theresa May has found herself in aren't new issues. These aren't something that have come as a surprise. Mm. In fairness, um, the EU, since we have brought the issues of Ireland to the centre of the negotiations, has been saying categorically that they will not allow any position um, in terms of a final deal that would damage um, the Good Friday Agreement or North-South trading Mm. issues and Mm. all that that would bring about. But the truth of the matter is that Theresa May thought she could play and win a game of chicken against the EU. Mm. What she expected Mm. to happen at this stage was that other EU states would turn around and say to Ireland, listen, your concerns need to become secondary. And thankfully that hasn't happened. It's not to say that it won't happen, but my belief is that it won't because, the, if anything, the language that EU leaders has becoming more forceful mm. in defence of the backstop. So, but you, you don't believe that she can sell a backstop deal to uh, many of uh, the Brexiteers, let alone the DUP? Well, the, and that's why I mentioned the intervention by the Labour Party yesterday as being important, because there is a mechanism now in, from which, for the first time ever, you can see a majority position in Parliament being adopted for anything, and this is uh, you know an entire mm. um, um, remaining within the customs. And do you think that's why Mr. Tusk was so critical of Jeremy Corbyn yesterday? I don't know. I don't know. And listen, you know, I don't try and get inside people's heads. What I have set as my priority, and Sinn Féin, mm. as a team of MEPs here, have set as our priority 
have been ensuring that Ireland is protected insofar as possible, knowing that there is no such thing as a good Brexit for Ireland, that any Brexit, including the withdrawal agreement and the backstop and for all of its merits, doesn't actually address all of the issues of concern for Ireland. It doesn't protect the rights of citizens in the North um, um, to, a, to a full degree. So we, we're still going to have a lot of work to do. But I think and I hope that over the next number of days that Theresa May will finally get the message through that we are not going to allow any messing on the part of the British government that could put in jeopardy the Good Friday Agreement or Ireland's economic future. And you're convinced she's going to be told no in 27 languages today? I certainly hope so. Uh, And when Mr Vratker goes north of the border, undoubtedly he will say that the Irish government will stand firm. When Mrs May comes to Dublin tomorrow and the Taoiseach closes the door behind them, what do you expect Leo Vratker to say to Mrs May? Well, I hope he says it very forcefully that in the Irish government's position, um, they were a little bit late coming to it, but they came to it that their position is in line with the majority position of the people of the North who voted to remain part of the European Union, who now risk having their rights on their mind and having their economic future put um, in question because of actions beyond their control. The DUP don't speak for a majority people in the North. They're a large and a significant voice, but they're not a majority voice. And Theresa May needs to recognise that. And now that she has an avenue towards adopting, getting a majority position on an alternative within the British Parliament, and that's the, the avenue she be, should be pursuing, rather than trying to placate the most far-right excesses of her own party and the DUP. OK, I don't know how many times over the last two and a half years I've asked you this, uh, but how do you think it'll pan out? I don't know. Um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty, certainly. I think the prospect of a no-deal scenario is still live, although I do think it has reduced um, because of the interventions that I have mentioned. But we could be talking tomorrow in a completely changed set of circumstances because these things have been so fluid from the start. But what I do hope happens is that we're prepared as a government and in line with our colleagues at a European level to hold firm because I believe if we do then common sense at some level will prevail because anybody who looks at this objectively knows that the scenario that the British government are contemplating of having one part of a small island operating inside the EU while another part is dragged out against the democratic wishes is a recipe for disaster that nobody can countenance. If we get to the 29th of March and the United Kingdom crashes out without a deal, uh, what then? Uh, is there any prospect of undoing that? Can they change their mind or is it back to square one where they would have to apply if they decided that it would be better or that they had made a mistake? Would they have to apply to become members of the European Union again and go through the whole accession process? If the British government leave on the 29th, as you say, um, in a no-deal scenario, EU law as it presently is constituted would state that in order for them to um, in order for them to rejoin that the application process would need to start afresh and that creates all sorts of um, difficulties so I think a much more likely scenario although it's, it, mm. you wouldn't describe it as likely but it's more likely is that an extension of time would be sought but again an extension of time being sought without an assurance as to what's actually going to be um, acceptable and agreeable by the British Parliament. It's difficult to see how the uh, how the European Union would accede to such a request. And there's a number of very senior MEPs, including Guy Verhofstadt, who have said categorically that they do not want. 
British MEPs back in the European Parliament in the new mandate, which is the 1st of July. Mm. So all of these things, you know, are um, you know, are adding layers upon layers to the overall... Layers upon layers, uh, because the number of MPs or MEPs is one thing, uh, but there's also the European budget, uh, there's uh, the European Commission, uh, and of course the question of a, a European Council. Yeah, and if you look at the scenario with the budget, as as you mentioned, you know, the withdrawal agreement includes provision for Britain to pay, continue to pay its contributions up until um, the end of next year. If you have a situation where there's a crash out, obviously that's, that stops and then you have a huge uncertainty with regard to some very important um, cohesion funding streams, interreg funding streams, common agriculture policy streams that are all really important to countries. Like, like Ireland. So across the board, nobody, I believe, wants to see a no-deal scenario. But that's not to say the circumstances won't bring us to that point. And that's why I think um, we need to be very clear and upfront, as has been the case over the past 12 months or more, where we have been saying that this is as good as it can get from mm. uh, an accommodation on the part of the Irish people in a in Brexit scenario, even though it's the least worst option. It's not as good as it should be because clearly the people of the North want to remain part of the European Union and they should be permitted to do so. And in the event of a no-deal scenario, well then, quite clearly, um, the mitigation of that impact on Ireland would have to include consideration for uh, an opportunity for the people of the North to vote as to which union they want to be part of, the European Union through a united Ireland or the so-called United Kingdom, it's anything but at the minute, that clearly isn't operating in their interest. All of which is hypothetical, of course, uh, but perhaps we could conclude where we started and uh, the Prime Minister's visit to Brussels uh, today. Uh, Do you think that there's any hope of positive progress as a result of that visit, or is it a wasted journey? Well, I don't think talks can ever be described as being wasted, but the truth of the matter is that Theresa May is arriving to Brussels without any proposal. And she's asking for um, something to be changed without saying what she wants it to be changed to. And when you're dealing with a scenario whereby the backstop and the withdrawal agreement, as is currently constituted, was agreed by her and was amended during negotiations at her request. Now she's coming after asking her own parliament to, um, to vote against that deal that she signed to request that the European Union change the deal without actually asking what it is you want this change. It's just a bizarre um, um, situation. Um, so no is the answer. I don't expect at the end of the day that we're going to see white smoke and a new agreement being being reached because unless and until Theresa May shows that she has a majority position in the House of Commons for whatever she's proposing, then I don't think that's going to get much sucker by the European um, negotiators and you can see why. Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy speaking to me from Brussels this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, according to the Forza Trade Union, school secretaries enjoy a salary of between €24,000 and €44,000, €711, that is. Uh, That is uh, if uh, they're employed directly by the Department of Education. Unfortunately, for school secretaries, 90% of them are not employed directly by the department. Uh, Let's talk uh, about this. Maria Donna's chair of the Forza School Secretaries branch and on the line. Good morning to you, Maria. 
you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. What about the other 90%? If they're not reaching those salary levels, what kind of money do they get? Well, the other 90%, they're paid through the ancillary grant, um, which is given by the department to schools and can really be distributed in, in a myriad of ways and is, in fact, distributed that way. So many could earn as little as 12000 a year. Some are, you know, on the same pay scales as department pay, but they don't enjoy the same conditions such as sick pay and pensions that department paid secretaries um, would do. Like, I suppose anyone who goes into a school, the first person they meet is the school secretary. It's usually you hit the ground running, it's a very busy job. You could be presented with anything on a given day. Students, parents, inspectors from the department, you name it, it happens at the school secretary's desk. But most people presume that school secretaries are public servants because the majority of people employed in schools, in fact, are public Mm. servants. Uh, and, that isn't the case. And uh, the secretaries who were recruited before 82, is it? Are, are, uh, the 78-79 scheme, we call those secretaries, yeah, before 1982. That scheme finished in 1982. So right. They, and and uh, do they make up the 10% who are employed directly by the department? Well, the remainder of those people who were mm. in employment at that time make up the 10%. Right. Uh, and for those who are earning 12,000 a year, I assume that's part-time employment, is it? No, no, not at all. That could, uh, that would be, that could be a permanent employee or well, categorically a lot of people or a lot of school secretaries sign on during the summer, sign on at Christmas, sign on at Easter. They're not paid for the holidays. Okay, but where, they're, so they're, they're, not being paid, they're not being paid six euro an hour, I take it. Well, the recent, the last point of the WRC ruling was to establish, it was set out to establish a minimum rate. Now, bear in mind that many of these secretaries would have anything up to 18 to 20 years service. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, to, this was to attain a floor rate of 13 euro an hour, which will the last stage of this process is the 1st of April 2019. Okay, but they are uh, receiving at least the minimum wage and you'd like it to be a, uh, uh, at, well, at a minimum of, of 13. Our experience is that many, in fact, have to fight. This was a 2.5% for four consecutive years, mm. commencing in 2015. Our experience is, as recently as this stage of it, that we still have to write to schools to remind principals that this is what the secretary is entitled to. Many secretaries have to fight on their own you know, ground mm. to attain this last stage, to just attain... Um, Thirteen euro an hour. Okay, but so they are governed by uh, employment law and have the same employment rights that anybody else would have. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, more than that, but you would like them to be on a, a par with other civil servants, is it? Well, we would like them to be on a par with the department paid secretaries who have a pay scale, who have um, basically sick pay conditions as public servants The, the same entitlement and, to sick pay yes, and the same exactly. pension rights and so on. Okay, stay with us if you would please, uh, Maria. We're also joined by Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash who's come into us uh, this morning and uh, you've organised a, a public meeting uh, in support of this campaign because it, it is a campaign that was launched uh, last week, uh, Support Our Secretaries. That's right, it was actually launched in uh, January and the fact of the matter, Michael, is that the situation that school secretaries, the bulk of school secretaries find themselves in 
in at the moment is unsustainable. It's unsustainable for them as employees, but it's also unsustainable for the education system. Uh, as Maria said, we have a small number of um, school secretaries, uh, and even the, the, the word school secretary is a misnomer because what they are really is school managers and school administrators. They're also accountants, they're counsellors, they're the first point of contact that all of us have when we contact the school, and they're so important. They are the face uh, of the school and the voice of the school uh, and that very, very public um, face. But they're not treated the same way as the other public servants that they work alongside. Um, remember that the bulk of uh, school staff are teachers. Uh, they're public servants. They have incremental pay scales. They'll enjoy pension. They have mm. maternity leave um, entitlements. They have sick leave entitlements and so on. Very few of these entitlements apply to school secretaries, particularly the school secretaries, of course, who are employed through the ancillary grant, which is, you know, over over 3,000 uh, 3, of them. So my ask here and the ask of the union ultimately is that we would see the 3,500 school secretaries who are the public face of our schools, who make sure that our schools run well, uh, are transitioned to a position where they are full-time public servants employed on the same scale as the uh, as those But they're uh, not. They're paid through this grant. Just, just directly just, by just, the department. Just explain to us what the ancillary grant is um, yeah. what it's the, intended for. The ancillary grant and lots of parents and there'll be parents listening in who are members of parents, mm-hmm. councils and boards of management and so on. The ancillary grant is provided to um, schools to provide support services, i.e. Um, salaries for secretaries, caretakers, cleaners in some contexts uh, and various other um, um, various other uh, operations for the school. Now, um, this goes to the heart of the problem because the way in which the ancillary grant is managed is very inconsistent. Um the salaries of uh, the school secretaries employed by boards mm-hmm. of management is extremely inconsistent. We have anything from, uh, as Maria was saying, uh, in the worst case scenario, that the union has found people who are in €12,000 mm-hmm. a year having to sign on in, at Christmas and in the summer, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, people who are maybe closer to the uh, higher uh, civil service pay grade scale, but, but with few of the entitlements. So um, the ancillary grant, uh, it's left up to the school board of management how they uh, actually uh, spend on it. It's based in, in many cases, and in most cases, on the number of students who are in the school. Uh, and as far as I can recall, uh, the uh, full ancillary grant or the, the, the highest entitlement um, is, is for school, you know, a little bit 500 pupils. So it kind of stops there. Mm. So, you know, Michael, the, the, the role of the school secretary has changed dramatically over the last you know, 20 years as well. I'm dealing with school secretaries uh, in this region who are on the same salary that they were on 10, 15 years ago. They haven't seen an incremental pay increase. Uh, they have no pension uh, when they retire. Uh, and the school very much depends on them. And my concern is that how are we going to hang on to good school secretaries who make sure the school runs properly and how are we going to ensure that uh, younger people coming through the system are attracted uh, into uh, the sector to become that school administrator that they might want to be because we all know schools are so dependent on uh, professional school secretaries uh, performing at the highest standard. Parents depend on them. It's the first point of contact when you know a child is sick, mm. uh, when there's an issue in the school. Uh, that's the first point of contact. So we need to hang on to our good school secretaries. We need to respect it. It's about dignity and it's about respect. And you know, looking at some of the figures that were used in terms of the 2014-2015 arbitration process um, that awarded and the department then accepted a cumulative 10% pay increase over uh, a four-year period. And that arbitration process Mm. Um, uh, um, as a result of that, uh, that sort of process finished uh, is, is due to finish th- this year. You know, to transition uh, school secretaries to a point where the department are paying them, where they are considered to be public servants, is only going to cost about four and a half million in year one and about sixteen million euro over ten year period. That is uh, small beer considering the work that the school secretaries do. All they're looking for is the dignity and respect that they're entitled to to be treated the same as the public servants they work alongside. Uh, out of a, a budget of 
what's the education budget? Ten billion or what's the third highest? Uh, Ten, twelve uh, billion or something of any government department. I think so. Yeah, and, mm-hmm, you know the bulk mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. of, of uh, the bulk of that money actually goes on 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 the pay of teachers, college, university lecturers, and, and so on. And it is only right mm. that our teachers and our college lecturers and uh, others who work mm. uh, for the Department of Education or within our education system are treated well. In, Unfortunately, in, in the, the secretary system is a Cinderella service. In, in the context of uh, the education budget, uh, it, it would seem like a, a small amount of money. Uh, obviously, there's consequences uh, when you allocate millions to one thing, something else tends to suffer. But Maria, this has the support of the three uh, teachers unions. It has the support of the INTO, the TUI. In fact, um, Patricia King has spoken out and um, Sheila Noonan, uh, all in support of us. Uh, This campaign has basically taken off since the 17th of January. Mm. And the aim of the campaign is to make the public aware generally, because as I said before, they don't really know. How many people um, are you talking about? Four million sounds a lot of a lot of money. How many people would uh, be entitled to a pay increase if that was to be allocated to this? Well, there are approximately three and a half thousand school secretaries, so ten percent of them right. wouldn't come into that bracket. And so that's two and a half thousand. What you'd be plus, looking at, yeah, 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 okay. yeah. And you were also saying that uh, on occasion, sometimes you have secretaries working side by side, one who's employed directly by the department, on possibly up to as much as forty-five thousand, uh, and somebody who's not on possibly as little as twelve thousand. Absolutely, yes, that has happened in many cases, and. Um, that's you know there. That's just one of the features. You have uh, another situation I came across where um, a secretary had to work in four different schools to make up a full working week in a rural area. Um, you know, there's just so many problems really that we come across on a daily basis. Okay, Jed Nash, you're trying to drum up uh, support locally for this. You've, uh, yeah, yeah, this, this is uh, tonight, I'm supporting this yeah. campaign mm-hmm. uh, because I think it's important that uh, school secretaries get the respect uh, and are afforded the dignity that I think that they're entitled to, and I think most people would agree with that sentiment. Um, but uh, there's no point just relying on the sentiment. We need to convince government uh, that this is the right thing to do. Uh, it comes at very little cost. Um, everybody's entitled to respect and dignity in the workplace, uh, especially our school secretaries. So we have a meeting tonight in Barlow House and Drawhead at 7 o'clock. We've invited uh, all local uh, rock members are allowed in these Mead constituency uh, and uh, we are inviting anybody who's interested in quality education uh, and workers' rights in uh, this area to attend that meeting to express their support. Um, so this is the first of, I hope, uh, many regional meetings across the country to back this campaign for respect and dignity in the workplace for, for our school secretaries. Okay, look, thank to, thanks to both of you uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash in studio and on the telephone, Maria Dunn, who's a chair of uh, the Forza School Secretaries branch. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, uh, there's uh, strikes, overtime bans and uh, protests. Uh, the health service is in crisis. Uh, GPs are up in arms and some 300 members of NAGP, the National Association of uh, GPs, stage a protest outside of Leinster House. Dr. Marie, or Mary Scully, I beg your pardon, is a GP based in Navin and one was one of the 300 protesting yesterday. She joins us now and uh, a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. What, what, what is uh, the problem... Uh, with general practitioners. Okay, well, good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. 
Um, well, first of all, I'd like to just start by saying that GPs, as a rule, were not a militant group by and large. And it takes a lot to get us to close our practices in some cases and go out onto the streets to protest. Why are we protesting? Well, we are fed up. We are demoralised. We are ignored by government. We are completely under-resourced. General practice gets 3.5% of the total health budget. And we're seeing up to 100,000 patients a day. We can't get locums to cover us. We can't get assistance to help us. We can't get replacements when we retire, go out on sick leave, take maternity leave. The problem is particularly acute in rural practices where they're having real difficulties with keeping their businesses afloat. Right. And why is it that you're receiving money from the government when people come into you and pay 50, 60 euro? Tell you what, Michael, the only thing that keeps a lot of practices afloat is the private income, which is, you know, it's keeping the, um, you know, the whole thing afloat. Because really, the problem is that um, our medical card income and income we receive for government for other things like mother and infant childcare, um, for uh, immunizations. There's a thing called FEMPI, which I'm sure you're aware of, mm-hmm. financial emergency measures in the public interest. So 10 years ago in the recession, we had our practices incomes cut by, in some cases, up to 38%. And that's not like GP income, that's practice income. Our overheads, our costs, our practice salaries all remain the same. So, you know, we've taken a huge hit and we, we struggled on mainly because we did or wanted to do a bit for the recession. But now, really, the recession is over and TDs have had their um, fees uh, reversed and in some cases have had a pay increase on top of that. Um, lots of places have had their FEMPI, you know, cuts reversed, mm. but we haven't. And in fact, the government has indicated that our FEMPI cuts are going to be permanent. Um, and we, you know, feel this is, you know, unjustified and unfair to us. And do you believe that the money is uh, there because uh, the cut under that emergency legislation was €160 million euro, and GPs are arguing that you need an additional four to €500 million euro in order to expand the service? Slauncher care is to happen, and the backbone of slauncher care is primary care. But we can't do it at the moment with what we have at the moment. We are just barely keeping our heads above water. And if the government wants to give us more work, then we have to be resourced to do it. We have to be able to take on staff. We have to be able to take on assistants. We have to be able to take on practice nurses. You know, we can't do it with with, with, with the resources we have at the moment. We just can't. And if the cuts are not reversed or if additional money is not put into expanding the service as uh, the case may be, what options are there? Because uh, each GP is a small enterprise in effect. Do you have the ability to increase what you charge private patients? Well, you, you know, you said it earlier, you know, that's a big gripe for private patients, you know, that they come in and they have to fork out 50 or 60 euro. Um, and, you know, people can't really afford it. And it's really unfair that the private patients should be supporting general practice when really it's the government's job to be doing that. So it really would be unfair to bump up our private prices because the government aren't paying us what we feel we should be paid. Uh, and is it uh, that uh, the medical card patients are being subsidised as we speak by the private patients? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, you know, if you take, for example, a practice that has the bulk of its patients being medical cards, and a lot of like rural practices, that would be the case. Now, they are really, really struggling. 
And in a lot of cases, I know um, that where GPs have retired, they have just been unable to get anybody to come in and take over their practices. You see places like out in Sneem and County Kerry and, you know, Boris and County Offaly, and they just cannot get GPs because the practices are now unviable as a small business. Apparently there's 26 communities who have no GP at all. And I was listening to a, a GB, GP talk last night saying he wasn't able to retire because uh, that would require paying redundancy to staff money he doesn't have. Yes. If you can't get somebody to take over your practice, then you are forced to pay out redundancies. And, you know, that can wipe out, you know, a GP's entire sort of pension, um, you know, lump sum in one go. You know, so... What, really what about your at the moment. what about your practice in Navan? Uh, are you able to take new patients? No, we have not been taking on new patients for some years now because we haven't got the capacity. We can barely offer a service to our existing patients. We haven't we haven't been able to offer a same day GP appointment service for some time now. Uh, we take on you know we see emergencies mm. on the day when we you know when there are emergencies. But you know if you ring up in the morning, there won't be uh, you know an appointment free for the whole day for any of our doctors. And we're a big practice, mm. you know. So so we can just about keep our own practice going but we can't afford to take on new patients because then that would diminish the service we are trying to give to our existing patients. And where do people go? I mean it's the obvious question because uh, all of the towns along the commuter belt are are growing and as people move into these towns if they can't see a, a GP what do they do? It's a real difficulty for them, and this is one of the problems. You know, this is what mm. is going to be happening in the future unless the government wake up. You know, like it's somebody said yesterday at the meeting, um, Matthew Tuha, who's the current president of NAGP, that we could, in fact, be the last generation of GPs as the public know it. Because, you know, if the government don't wake up, then when this current generation of GPs goes, we mightn't have anybody to replace them at all. Okay. So at the moment... What, what can patients do? A lot of patients are using the out-of-hours service as their regular GPs. Right. That's, that's been mm. known to happen. Uh, they don't have a GP at all. Some of them are tracking back, you know, long numbers of distances to see their previous GP that they are, in fact, registered with before they moved away. Uh, there are um, patients attending casualty inappropriately because mm. they haven't got a GP. You know, so that's mm. the options that are open to them. None of which are good, obviously. Dr. Scully, I have to leave there because we've run out of time, but thank you for your time and for joining us uh, this morning. Dr. Mary Scully is a GP based in Navan and brings our programme to its conclusion today. As I say, our time has run out and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.